0: You should desire to work within the system you've been given that's, again, native to the to the people, and you should find ways to do that. You should be generally agnostic at a very principled level as to the form of government, except for... Pure democracy, that's always bad. Don't, don't accept that. But a mixed polity is, you know, the Aristotelian ideal. And people don't often recognize the strong monarchical element of our polity. In fact, one of the strongest elements is the monarchical element. We just call it the executive, right? But it's the same thing. And we've seen periods of time in, in history where that element has been emphasized more than others for similar purposes, to restore order, to reorient in many ways the constitutional order itself we've had several evolutions in this way.
1: Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today we are taking another step in our investigation of Christian nationalism. All month long, we are invoking the unassuming style of Peter Falk's Columbo to ask just one more thing about Christian nationalism. We are sitting down with the key voices for and against Christian nationalism, and we're seeking to hear what they have to say about the subject. What Christian nationalism is, what it is not, why it is good or why it is not. And over the course of these dozen or so interviews, our prayer is that God would give more light than heat to this important subject. Next month, we will begin sorting out some of these claims. But today, we're sitting down with practicing attorney and editor-in-chief of American Reformer, Timon Klein, and we're going to discuss his interest and understanding of Christian nationalism. So, Timon, welcome to Christ Overall. Hey, David, thanks for having me. This is fun. Glad you're here. Yeah. And Steve, welcome back, brother. Good to see you. Always glad to be with you, Dave, and
2: with Tymon as well.
1: Yeah, it's been something of a marathon with all these recordings and getting to talk to good brothers all over over the country. And uh, looking forward to our time today with time, time and Klein. Time, maybe just give us a little bit of background. I know that you have experience in law. You did some seminary at Westminster. You're now down in Florida. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you are doing these days.
0: Yeah, so um, background, you know, standard background stuff. I'm actually from East Tennessee originally. My parents were uh, Southern Baptist missionaries when I was growing up, and then my, my dad was pastored for a long time. Um, so I'm a MKNPK, and uh, you know moved moved around quite a bit because of that. Met my wife at uh, Cedarville, actually in Ohio, and then several years later, or I guess a couple years after uh, we got married, or so, went out to the East Coast to the Philadelphia area and did law school at Rutgers and seminary at Westminster. Um, which, was a, which was a great time of, you know, f- if nothing else, it gave me time to read a lot of things and start thinking about, um, you know, there would be the, the genesis of some of the stuff we're going to talk about today was started thinking about it then um, and figuring out what my particular interests were. Um, I did practice law for a couple years, you know, was, did litigation in the courts, all that stuff was um, frankly bored with that. So now what I do is I'm editor-in-chief at American Reformer, which is um, great because I get to write a lot, read a lot, and even better critique other people's writing. You know, that's uh, even better than writing yourself. No, I think of myself as a, a magnanimous editor. I never impose word counts. They're tyrannical. they just good ideas the way. Some of my time is also dedicated, though, to um, a great new project I'm excited about, which is the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College. So I'm the director of the uh, scholarly initiatives for that, along with Jeff Schaefer, um, who's the director, which gives me an outlet to focus in, in that regard on early modern and contemporary jurisprudence and, and legal thought. Uh, that's what that center is dedicated to, developing uh, you know curriculum and, and resources and uh, other types of scholarly efforts. So I've, I've got you know two perfect outlets to keep thinking about. Law and politics and theology and all these things, which is exactly what you know I enjoy spending my time on. So uh, I guess you could say I've got the got dream jobs at this point, plural. I live in live in Southwest Florida now with my wife and, and our one son, Winthrop. It's it was actually cool today. It was it's it's been in the 60s, uh, which is amazing. I'm not built for extreme heat, um, as you can tell from my my features, but. Yeah, enjoying it. And uh, we we are in in the OPC. We attend a PCA church now down here. My wife was also raised in the SBC, but we have both
1: found our way to uh, greener pastures. Yeah, you have succumbed to leave (laughs) the SBC behind and go other places. If it was a different conversation, Steve and I might try to pull you back, but that's not our conversation today. It it would be boring.
0: I have (laughs) have very boring reasons for all of it that entertain no one and uh, give nothing... N- nothing to sink your teeth into that would allow you to pull me back. So, uh, very
1: fair. Well, you mentioned the early modern period, and that's certainly one of the things we're going to get a chance to talk about today, because one of the things you've done some writing on, and I think American Former has been unique in putting some things out there from kind of a Protestant uh, magisterial tradition that is there, and so certainly want to think about that and how that influences the conversation going on with Christian nationalism today. But maybe just to begin with, h- how would you define Christian nationalism? And uh, you mentioned the work of the Hale Institute up there in Moscow and New St. Andrews, and certainly Doug Wilson's Mere Christendom. We've talked to him about that, as well as uh, Stephen Wolf's project and A Case for Christian Nationalism are, are two different flavors of Christian nationalism, two different ways that that has been articulated that have many similarities, but also differences. How would you define it, and how does your understanding of it compare to theirs?
0: Right. So, and I, I'm friends with both Doug and Stephen, you know, enjoy their—there's their, much in their work that I, I completely agree with. There's other, you know, maybe— Slight tweaks. I I was actually asked recently by someone to distinguish myself from Stephen Wolfe. And my answer was, I completely agree with Stephen insofar as he agrees with the reformed tradition. And I disagree with him insofar as he doesn't. (laughs) So so it kind of shows you where uh, my interest in um, Christian nationalism and some of these adjacent debates, we might say, or even labels, uh, conceptual frameworks, As you already noted, this is not just American Reformer. Of course, American Reformer is not taking on any any labels, but I'm I'm happy to call myself a Christian nationalist insofar as it's useful. I'm not married uh, to any particular label. Insofar as it's useful as a heuristic to, one, assess and critique current political assumptions that especially predominate evangelicalism, and two, recover older, now discarded, I would say, political assumptions or outlooks that I think are better and offer correctives for many of our contemporary problems and to just provide more holistic and workable theories of, we could say, governance or even just political life generally. Um, So insofar as I embrace the label Christian nationalism, it is because I see it as an opportunity to recover, as you put it, you know, magisterial Protestant political thinking, which much of which is not distinctly Protestant, even though it, it, actually most of it's not distinctly Protestant. You've already mentioned integralism and we can get into that. I see integralism is performing a similar service, if you will, um, even though the label is old, older, you know, it's a 19th century sort of papal adoption um, through various encyclicals. But it's really just a recovery even at that time of medieval political assumptions, much of which are carried through the Reformation. So these are the things that I like and generally just agree with. And this conversation, as it's emerged around Christian nationalism, which I think is a perfectly fine label, if someone else can find a punchy, galvanizing two-word label that's better, you know, I'll, I'll be fine with that. But, I, but some of these things you don't really get to predict or control. They just happen. And Christian nationalism is kind of called on. And so I'm you know happy to be part of the discussion and defend uh, the general premises there. So for me, it is wrapped up a lot in questions of, of church and state, or a lot of people are going to want to be a little a little uh, less controversial and talk about just politics and religion or morality and society. These sorts of conversations are the ones I like to have and I think are very important. I mean, I, I spend much of my time and resources on them. So Christian nationalism, you know, it, to give it a definitional or, or a working definition for our purposes, you know, I think it's just expressing those older assumptions in many ways, and Stephen Wolfe does um, a lot of this in his own book, um, and it's recognizing that every polity, um, in this case, you know, it's taking the nation as the, the scope of a polity, and I think we, we should talk about what that means prudentially and in the American context, historically and, and presently, but taking the nation as the scope of your, your assessment, every polity should be oriented to higher ends, higher goods, and most especially in religion, since it must reflect man's anthropology and ends that are found both in his body and his soul. So, it's not he's not reducible only to the material. He has an eternal end and a uh, religious interest um, and a religious consciousness. So, your politics, your polity itself should be oriented to those same goals that correspond to a truly human life, even if We can talk about the distinction between temporal and spiritual interest as they coincide with church and state, but I think it's this basic orientation that is a religious one and that this can't be denied. It is, in fact, everywhere the case. So this is being open about, you know, that fact. And then it is um, assessing what's the true religion, because, of course, if you're going to be oriented religiously, you should be only oriented the true one, and Christianity is the true one. Therefore, the polity, the nation, um, should self-professedly in a certain way, primarily through its law and policy, demonstrate its orientation to that true religion as a guide and um, conditioner of all of its activity, um, including even what we might say are are modes or vectors of of soft power, which have to do with societal stigma and customs and all these sorts of things. So that would be my basic approach to, you know, the, the uses of the label, what, it's, what it accomplishes. And again, I think it's it's a good one, um, but it's really sort of like political parties. It's only useful to me insofar as it's a vehicle for ideas. And those are the ideas that I primarily find in uh, what you call the magisterial tradition, which I think is a good label for that. But that, of course, extends, in my opinion, up through the 18th century and you can still see that in inheritance, alive and well and active, even in our own country. Um, so we can, we can get into that also. But that's the uh, very not brief explanation of, of what I think about the label. I guess.
1: Well, here in that kind of response, both. Stephen Wolf and Doug Wilson, I think, Doug, maybe on our podcast or maybe someplace else talking about the usefulness of the term Christian nationalist, that it's something that with three minutes or less, you can define the terms that are there, what a Christian is, what a nationalist is, opposing that to globalism, opposing that to tribalism, that there's a usefulness that is there. But then also something a little bit more kind of concrete in that, you know, Stephen's definition related to the totality of national action consisting of social customs and laws procuring both earthly and heavenly goods, you mentioned just the way that that relates to body and soul. And so all of those things are beginning to be at play and thinking about the political structures of the polity that we have. And, you know, certainly those are the the types of conversations from what we have had, what we're going to talk about today. You mentioned two other things, though. I'd be curious for you to kind of develop this further. You mentioned the usefulness of this with regards to critiquing things related to political theory or public policy today and recovering those from the magisterial Protestant tradition. Let's go back in time first. What are you wanting to recover from that magisterial Protestant tradition? It's a good, good question.
0: What I would basically describe anything I want to recover as being decidedly conventional up until not very long ago. You know, I, I never describe America as an experiment because I like to live in a country, not an experiment, not in a lab somewhere. But there are experimental elements that have now entered our, our political life that, um, historically speaking, have not had a long run. Uh, don't have a long track record, but are usually assessed as being very successful now in everything that came prior to be unsuccessful um, whereas the the uh, scope uh, time scope of the the ideas now considered unsuccessful is much longer and in fact more successful if you just assess it at a basic political level so I would do, anything i'm I'm talking about or not um, as I see them fringe given the proper historical scope rather conventional and these would be ideas that again the, i don't think the magisterials innovated in in this in most of these regards other than adjusting a few things for ecclesiological purposes so to to begin you would say your which i've already hinted at some of this when you approach politics you need to uh, which is just our life together, right? This is this is basic Johannes Althusius stuff of, um, you know, what he would call symbiosis, which is just how how you live together. Um, so you know, politics shouldn't be overthought. This is uh, very basic, and you can adopt, you know, from Aristotle and everyone up. It begins with family life, and it moves into the interactions of family, and then the cities, and and these sorts of things. That's your that's your prehistoric narrative of how you know politics develops into larger units. But when you approach these things, you should be respectful of the things you are dealing with, namely human beings in those relationships. And you should recognize the true anthropology or metaphysics involved there. And you should try to construct your polis around those truths in a way that promotes flourishing, uh, the common good, these sorts of things. And those would all be ends-based politics um, that would have been very conventional not even 100 years ago uh, to say you must begin with the end and you must consider The nature of the things you're dealing with, which are which are people and families and these these relationships, your focus is on getting to the ends in view for the betterment of the the subjects in view. So that basic political outlook, I think, is now discarded or not in play whatsoever, I guess you could say. The liberal order, the liberal approach to politics, is oriented fundamentally differently, in my opinion, and we can we can talk about that. So the first part is the orientation of your your political life, and as I said, that includes not just temporal or earthly goods, but even the highest goods that mark man's you know final destiny. So this basic orientation, um, which should then guide anything that comes out of that, in terms of your means um, for achievement of order, stability at a most basic level, or promotion of truth morality and, uh, you know, encouragement of, of true religion and these sorts of things um, are all governed by this initial orientation that I think has been lost and it, it shows in many ways um, because things that should be valued are not valued and emphases that should be emphasized or not. So that, that would be the first thing. The second thing that probably then uh, beyond that very amorphous kind of, you know, what's our orientation, what are the ends in view, uh, really does come down then to your relationship between church and state, right? As you move into, you know, the development of your your political structures and your the necessity of law arises, the need for enforcement and judgment of those things that accord with both of man's ends and both parts of his, you know, dualistic being, which is body and soul. You have to then think about how those two institutions relate, of course right? And this is really, I think, in the Christian nationalist discussion where most of the consternation comes in. I don't really think it's, even if people aren't adopting those, those more general ideas about the orientation of, of politics um, at, a, at a basic level, I don't think that really offends people. I think it's when you get into, okay, well, how, uh, what are the means by which these ends and the good of man is accomplished? Um, and how do we, how do we, mediate uh, differing views of how that should be accomplished, and so on and so forth. So, uh, the, the relationship between church and state is being fundamentally complementary, of course, you know, in, in many ways, depending on which, which kind of expressions you're choosing from the magisterial tradition, you might have very little distinction between the two at all apart from a distribution of labor within the polity, right, Which within a Christian polity. Or you could say a, a distinction between jurisdictions that are necessarily overlapping according to juridical competency, but they share an orientation in the subject matter, which is the people, as well as the ends, both both powers, as they would, would typically be called before we start talking about them more regularly as church and state. Both temporal and spiritual powers are both oriented to uh, the good of man, and this includes the highest good of man. And But they have differing means and competencies for uh, pursuing those ends. And so they should be in unity. It should be a... Um, you know the diaconal sort of relationship between the two is something you know, like George Gillespie would describe them as being coordinate, something like this. And so it expresses or it looks to a more um, comprehensive view of the polity. Everything is oriented towards the same goals and looks at the at the people that are being governed either according to the spiritual or temporal ends. As uh, holistic beings, right? So it's it's more, I would say, organized in a certain way and orderly. And these assumptions about uh, it's not that the uh, the reformers never wrote about these things. In fact, they spilled quite a bit of ink on them. Um, contrary to some popular belief is this is this is just some kind of Constantinian holdover that's un, uninterrogated um but at the same time when you do read some of these writings, there's many assumptions embedded like the ones I was just expressing that are not worked out all the time because they assume everyone agrees with them, even you know they're you would say uh you know counter reformational Jesuits or something or i mean if you read lex rex he uh, he never gets tired of citing Jesuits because they there's basic agreement on many of these things pertaining to law and law and politics, although there there are some disagreements, but, you know, th- these are just basic assumptions that used to govern a, our political outlook, even as Protestants, and used to govern the way we approached law and, um, you know, all these sorts of related things. And so I think the jury is certainly still out on a liberal order, and we can talk about that as well. And I don't think that these assumptions and ways of doing political life have been defeated uh, as summarily as especially post-war liberal advocates would would assume. And much of that is accomplished uh, so they don't have to do real work on it through certain false historical narratives, I think, that are bandied about and, and pretty much gobbled up even by evangelicals, such as, you know, everything in the quote-unquote medieval period was awful, And everyone hated their life and there were probably no real Christians anyway. So, you know, there's nothing to find there. That's it. I mean, it's a very common evangelical narrative to run around with for many reasons, um, but it also creeps into assessment of political theory. And so that's being, you know, being somewhat challenged now, not, not just by Christian nationalists, but by other commentators from various vantage points. And that's created a, a disruption in, in many ways. And people are, are trying to wrestle with that, um, which I think is productive. I think it's, you know, it's overdue. It doesn't mean everyone has to uh, agree with me on, it, on every bit of it. But I think the exercise is important. And that's why I've often said we're at the, as, as Protestants in America, at least at the incubation stage of political theology at this point, because there's so many atrophied muscles that have not been flexed. And so long that we're just, you know, we're just now sort of learning to even move them again. And they're, they're certainly not very strong, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get there. Um, so that's why I'm not usually that interested in, in exact policy prescriptions, um, because there's just too, too much to, uh, to recover before you're even prepared to make those sort of prudential arrangements according to context. But I
1: do talk about them some. Well I think you just spurred interest in Steve on that last point, but I'd be curious to hear uh, more of just your reflections on that, Steve.
2: Well, I'm just wondering, uh Timon, if you would if you would think a policy issue was was this kind of question. You you've laid out your vision. I think I can see what you're saying. I mean, in fact, you know, as as it's rooted in history, we see it's it was made possible because of obviously the influence of, of the gospel in the Western society. You know, going back to making Christianity official in the Roman Empire, and then, of course, with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, the influence of the Catholic Church and, and you know, the Holy Roman Empire and so on. So, so you can think of building a Christian society. Of course, we're not there anymore. So is this a policy issue of, well, how do you get back there, right? How does this vision that was once there, that certainly seemingly is under attack and and been lost, how do we get there? Is, is it a matter of... The, the influence again of the gospel and the church in society uh, so that you win over the majority of people to vote, or is it not tied to a voting of the, of the people? I mean, how do you get to the vision that you've just laid out for us uh, in terms of a Christian nation and uh, the, you know, the, the, the temporal role of the state, the spiritual role of the church, and so on?
0: Right. I, uh, I guess I wouldn't classify that as
2: a policy uh, issue.
0: So, as we can <laughs> address it, no. And of course, it's what it's what everyone wants to know. Because I think most Christians, at least that are trying to be good faith interlocutors, are are not necessarily um, in a, at a principled level against a lot of this stuff. Right. That that's brought up in the Christian Nationals debate. The the, the general response you often get is that sounds great, but uh, it's a pipe dream. Right. So some some things I'll, you know, point to, I, of course, have not uh, scripted out my step-by-step plan to, to get us back there. And if I had, I wouldn't share it with anyone yet, uh, right? So I wouldn't want to give that away because I want full credit for restoring America, you know, as a, as a Christian nation. But, you know, so, some things to notice about political life, even in America, and we'll, you know, I assume we're in the American context here, is things do change much more rapidly than are usually noticed. And they usually happen, the changes as occurred before anyone's aware that it's really occurred. And so, and it also does not require typically any kind of real majority to do so. And I think you can look at things um, that are very recent, like gay marriage, Um, You can look back before, you know, Dobbs to abortion. You can look at these things and notice that people we would say are our political opponents for these purposes are very astute and motivated to make change happen very quickly, very rapidly without really any massive amount of buy in or sort of changes of heart in the you know in the country what you really need is is you know some kind of level of disinterest and apathy and then you need like a very strong you know 20 to 30% to push something so the only point there is is just that how easy change actually is contrary to what what we want to think and that's been demonstrated i think even you know within our lifetimes the other thing i would say on this on this front is that what my ideal is, my political ideal, also has in it the principle that prudence must govern. And part of that is that you cannot foist upon a people, which I think, you know, America is is a people and still, still is one and ha- has been one, something that is completely incongruent with their um, history and tradition. And so what I would, as well as um, if if you can help it, their constitutional structure. And so what I would say is you can transport all these things that I'm, that I'm talking about into a basically American context. And I think there's some resonance there still for people who venerate um, their history and traditions. But the problem is they've been lied to about much of what that means. Um, so if you could you know, convince them just by pure exposure of, uh, one, their their religious tradition, but also their, their political and uh, national traditions, you could actually get a lot of buy-in because I think people are still sensitive to that. And I think it's a good thing to have a certain level of filial piety and, you know, mainly conservatives, but you see, of course, whether they're disingenuous or not, liberals make very similar arguments. In our country, political debates at least as it stands, uh, this may go away, but are still often won and lost on the basis of how much you can convince people you're doing something that's that's congruent with America, just what it's supposed to, you know, supposed to mean and what it's supposed to pursue and all this. That's how you justify many things, and so that's where battles can still be won and lost. And I really think they are compelling to people still, and I think that can can be done here. The last thing I'll say on that, also as 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 to prudence and how you do this. If you're going to be a magisterial Protestant, your political thought, you have to also think as they did about things, as well as a Western Christian generally. And so if you think about even the most, what we would say, cynical kind of observers of, of political life, uh, you know, whether you want to take Machiavelli or the, a lot of the Christian response to Machiavelli and Aquinas, you know, we we'll all make similar points of changes to law especially are in this way violent, they're disruptive. So you must be careful and slow in the way that you do it. And you must consider, you know, the extent to which you're willing to cause disruption for a a chosen end and whether it's justified, these sorts of things. You know, even if we got our requisite 30 percent on board and we had our arguments about the nature of the of America and the Protestant tradition and this being a Protestant country and all this and a sort of even if we got them into position where they're now becoming acceptable and compelling to people, you still would need to take a gradual approach because law is supposed to mean lead men to virtue gradually. Right. And so this is not some kind of uh, massive overhaul you could do overnight. And that's why I usually describe it as, you know, some kind of process of renewal, not necessarily a a full on regime change. Um, But I think it's, it's still not too late to try to first reinvigorate the political thought of Protestants who still dominate the country and then try to, um, you know, move through through various political means, meaning both both law and policy, as well as public arguments. And as I said before, you know, social stigma, very powerful. Um, you can develop all these things without needing a total overhaul and can introduce real uh, renewal in, the, in that regard. I think that's possible. Um, so in terms of the policy of how you implement it, I think that's, it's, it's doable. It's within the realm of possibility. If other changes we've witnessed or Large departures from, um, as Protestants from our historic way of thinking about many of these things, and as Americans from much of what we inherited at the founding. If we've departed this far this easily, um, in theory, you can go the other direction by similar means. It can't just be replicated because, um, of, of course, you're you can't actually hashtag return or whatever the you know the trad Twitter bros will say. But um, so it's possible, and that's that's
2: all my point is, I guess. I wonder. You just reflect. I mean, this may sound like a silly question, and so on. But I mean, in the reform tradition, uh, there is a strong doctrine of sin, obviously, and the need for regeneration. I mean, when we want law to reform people, are we just assuming that with that is coming the the power of the gospel that is also changing hearts, that that they would want? To do God's commands, I mean, uh, naturally, there's not a desire to please God and to do what is right and good. You know, governments are responsible to to enforce that and to uphold that. But uh, how how did you know? Just think about how that fits in with the Reformed tradition, the doctrine of sin, regeneration, uh, the legislation of law, changing of hearts. How are you thinking of that fitting in?
0: Yeah, this is. This, oh, I don't know if it's controversial to take or not, but it probably is. I'm a big fan of cultural Christianity and when we're we're, we're thinking about political life so when a, when we're at church um if we're in church together I'm very concerned about whether or not you're a genuine, you know, Christian that's in, that's in church with me. I'm of course concerned with that, and we should be with each other and and seek to edify one another and exhort each other to to true embrace of the of the gospel. Right? When I'm dealing with with law or political life, I I don't care about how much you believe it. I just need you to act accordingly for the sake of um, political peace, tranquility, and all these things. Now, I think that if you have a legal regime that reflects. You know the things we're talking about in terms of Christianity and its its doctrine, insofar as it applies to social and political life. I do believe in that pedagogical effect of law, and I think it does actually move people towards truth. Um, so even when we have something as simple as you know a law against theft, our hope is that you don't steal because you know that it's wrong and you actually believe that. But for the purposes of the the effect of that law and the effects on society, I don't really care if you believe it or not. I just need you to not do it. That's the limited scope of of that law and what it's supposed to be accomplishing. My requirement, my prerequisite for Christian society is not that everybody's converted. We, we can make Baptist and Presbyterian expectations uh, govern here, but I but I actually don't think that's where, neither with eschatology. I'm basically disinterested in eschatology. It doesn't come into play for me because I see these politics as a matter of justice and duty. Um, so, the, the bottom line is that it's the duty of A polity, whether it's, you know, we we describe now as a nation or however you break that up constitutionally, it's the duty of a polity to honor God with their laws and to promote true religion. So I would say it's a matter of duty and justice. It's a work of the spirit to determine how many people out of that polity will actually come to Christ and uh, spend eternity with him. But um, that's, not, that's my, not my interest as a statesman, even as my interest is to do everything you can to encourage people in that direction.
2: Yeah, I wonder, I mean, in the American system, I mean, you're saying in this context, right, you'd want to work within the American system, which is a constitutional republic. You would have to have a buy-in of people to those laws, so so you would you know, once you put those laws in place, you would have some would want to do them for the right reasons. Others just simply you're saying uh, you know they may not do it for the right reasons, but uh, they're in place and it's, there's a pedagogy to it. But you'd have to have the initial buy-in uh, to that. So would that not require people to want to value those laws even to get them in place, and and that would require in a vote, right, majority of people to do so, unless it gets imposed from without type of thing
0: yeah and the, and this is where i would bring up the you know uh, something that that uh, people really need to Get serious about again is is the federalist polity, right? In the way that it was originally meant to work, which is this would be your focus here would certainly be state level operations, I guess you would say. This is where you did have establishments, this is where you did have um, it's the proper purview of states to, to conduct morals legislation. So even in states where you did not have an establishment historically, you of course had blasphemy laws, Sabbath laws, all these sorts of things we we know about. And that's the proper place for that to happen, as well as as well as generally. Uh, health policy, but that's a different discussion we can have. So to that extent, your political problem is is changed a little bit because you have a smaller constituency and presumably more pockets of homogeneity. And in fact, the goal of uh, another goal of politics should be to foster homogeneity, not heterogeneity or diversity. These are not actually, these are political problems. They're not actually things that should be pursued for their own sake, even though they're just always a fact. So your scope is is smaller at you know your state level, which is part of the design of the of the country in fact, for these very reasons, a diversity of religious pockets and establishment and historic traditions and I think as people you know we talk about self sorting and all this, and we see that happening now for different reasons, although they're not disconnected from morality and questions of religious life, I think, but the point is you could you could find um, you could imagine a certain you know American map where you do actually have policies in certain pockets of the country tending more towards things traditionally. You know, if we think of establishment as like a bundle of sticks, some of those sticks being put back in, in the bundle in certain places. So I don't think it's, and and over time, my, my point of these, you know, the effect of law, and we see this now, you know, what's the real effect of, of Obergefell? It's, I mean, no one, well, maybe one person in like Kentucky went to jail for this, but it's, uh, you know, no one's really, it, that's not the point. The point, and it wasn't even the point that you needed this uh, this sort of, Massive buy-in, even though states were tending that way um, on their own, the the effect was a pedagogical declaration. To the extent now that like the a gay marriage debate is is boring, no one's even talking about that. It's over. It's a it's a foregone conclusion now, and I think we underestimate the extent to which that effect of law is very impactful um, upon cultural preferences and assumptions and so I think you can I think but I think that's inevitable and legitimate I think that's just how it works and so I think you really could not that you need massive purely democratic buy-in in our in our system but you could be, begin to affect the um, proclivities of a polity through these means you know and, and I, I think that is again I think it's doable. And you could appreciate or accept, you just accept politically that there's going to be a diversity of ways of doing this thing within our federal polity. And that's just the way it is. But you could still establish your more Christian leaning or even denominational specific laws eventually in a state, just like it just like it used to be. To having to deal with popular opinion is not a problem unique to the to the Christian nationalist project, right? It's always a problem. So I don't I don't see it as disqualifying.
1: So, Timon, if I kind of summarize something of what you're saying, so you would be for establishing Christian laws of morality, we might call the second table of the law, but it also seems like you would be for establishing the first table of the law as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, totally fair. Would, Would you enforce them in the same way? Would there be the same kind of coercion for both of those? Help us understand how you would see both of those at work.
0: Yeah, I mean, historically, of course, most um, bifurcating the two tables uh, made no sense. If the Decalogue is the summary, inscripturated summary of the natural law, then it's the basis for all human law, and everything must be agreeable, you know, thereto. It also doesn't make much sense to me that you can detach the duties of each table from one another just because one is, as we would now say, you know, people want to distinguish ones to God and ones to man, I don't see how you can do justice to either of those without justice to the other. And indeed, people who advocate only for second table enforcement still predicate all those arguments on something at some point about the image of God and 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 man and these things and uh, the nature of justice and all that. I don't see how you do that in this in this sort of almost schizophrenic way of where you break up uh, these duties and this law. So I I think that, yes, it's perfectly and and certainly just on traditional grounds, it's perfectly legitimate to enforce both. This would be the basis in many ways for things like blasphemy laws and whatever else you want to say in that way, however, you want to expand that kind of thing. um, There's also always a um, civil argument for laws like that, that that, um, do not allow you to revile, you know, the the predominant religion in public. Um, and these, this would be the rationale of courts um, in, in the uh, antebellum America on blasphemy law cases is uh, this is inherently destabilizing and damaging and, and bad and immoral um, to, to have. So I think also for Christians to readopt a category of law that is purely moral. I was talking with someone about this the other day, you know, you will hear conservative arguments for something like banning pornography because they'll list the things like it's uh, it's connected to human trafficking, it's, it's harmful to minors oftentimes, these things, but never just a straight-up moral argument of it's just wrong and it's obscene and it's bad. Now, I don't think this is that outlandish to people, actually, because you even have, we, we'd say, secular non-Christians who've developed... Uh, You know, on their own, a sort of category of psychological harm, recognizing that there's something beyond mere physical or material harm that is actually relevant and actionable. And I think um, in their own Unlearned way are, are noticing that there's um, there's a soul right there is a psyche and that the harm can be inflicted upon it as well and that would be done we would say in a in a Christian polity by reviling the you know the true religion which you actually want to encourage people to do that for their good and the good of their soul and there's always an argument I'm very fond of from Richard Baxter where he basically says part of the reason you have what we'd call religious laws. Is because most people are really pliable and are easily bullied. Is basically what he'd say, and it's the job of the of the good magistrate to support them and remind them that it is good to be a Christian and um, that the, that they should do this, So to set an example in this way, and for the laws to to um, encourage them to do it. Because there's going to be many other forces that try to discourage them from doing it, and so that's it's a more paternal, you know, kind of argument. But I think it's a, a good one and that goes along i guess with cultural christianity but yes i would i would enforce both tables i'm actually fine with um just complete established church in principle i think that's, that's perfectly fine
1: yeah i have a historical question i want to ask but first i want to ask steve something so and this kind of goes back to a first principles that you mentioned there where you have the orientation of life together in the family the city the nation all the rest and what should be established in the polis and the polity is both earthly and heavenly good so if i understand you correctly it sounds like that the nation itself or the political entity, the the king that's given the sword, if you will, whatever jurisdiction that is, should be coercing, should be encouraging, should be fostering something for heavenly good. Steve, what did you think about that? Is that the role of the state to do that? And maybe this is one point of difference that we would have.
2: Yeah, that's the billion dollar question, isn't it? So uh, obviously where the some of the differences lie, I'm a bit more hesitant to Put the state's role in that position. Now that we live in this place of redemptive history, I mean, much of what is being said in terms of the application of the Decalogue, in terms of the first and second table, does apply very well to to Israel uh, as a nation, as God's people. I'm not convinced that uh, myself, but that we're here to talk to Tymon about his view here in terms of uh, the role of the state now and, and then the role of the church. I mean, I'm just wondering, with that enforcement of the first table, Tymon, would you then say that in America, if we could get to this position – uh What about other religions? Would they be allowed in with immigration? Would you have religious freedom? It seems to me that if you have no other gods before me that we would then have no ability to have anyone I, mean, I guess we could say within the broader christian eastern Orthodox Roman Catholic Protestant and that would be primarily it is that would that be the vision of then say America returning to a proper sense of a christian nation
0: yeah i'm a I'm an advocate of what i would say is the traditional uh, concept of tolerance rather than what is it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with the phrase religious liberty but but all the baggage it kind of carries with it now that i want to chip away at so the having an established religion wherein the the laws and you know, the government itself is in some ways deferential to the, the teaching of the church and at least wants to protect it. Um, so, you know, when, when Franciscus Junius says, you know, that's the job of the magistrate to lead the people to the eternal gates of salvation, he says he's doing that in conjunction with the church and by protecting it and promoting its, its teaching and doctrine of scripture, right? So it's not that he's taken over the, the keys, or anything, and doesn't have any role in administration of the sacraments, preaching, or, or the, the discipline within the church. But he's he's supporting it, um, you know, to the hilt in this in this scenario. Having that that preferential treatment and that is, that establishment, which can look many different ways, doesn't negate a, a mode of toleration either for dis- dissenting factions. Um, which I think are just a reality. I don't think you can actually eradicate that, and I don't think you can use tyrannical means to accomplish uh, good ends. I think those are contradictory, and so I um, would be perfectly fine in a polity where there's um, even you know large contingents of of minority uh, groups that are are dissenters, um, and there's no need to you know run around killing them or something like this. But that doesn't mean you don't have the preferential treatment for. The, uh, the the established religion. It also doesn't mean that you can't, at least in principle, and this is where prudence comes in a lot because you have to think about larger political realities, but in principle, it doesn't mean also that you can't limit the expression of those tolerated groups to the extent where the, you know publicly they will not have the same abilities as the established faith. Um, they will not be able to propagate openly or, or do, you know, various sorts of things that people now traditionally will or not traditionally now will typically say um, religious liberty not only means I can I can believe whatever I want. It not only means I can uh, sort of practice this over here. It means I should have equal status and ability to participate in public life with everyone else, which requires a certain indifference politically towards religion, period in order to allow this radical sort of egalitarian principle and religion to, to succeed. Um, and I think that that is a, is a big problem. It's actually the, the solution Jefferson proposed um, to religious factionism and, and said, you know, you can't mediate between these various theological traditions. The best thing to do is for us to, be, to ignore them so that they'll die because they'll have no public importance. And think it's basically been accomplished. So an alternative solution is to say, well, we can have you know tolerance for dissenters that do not disrupt public life. So you know the classic example in, in New England is you know the Quakers, and this is always an episode that I think is treated unfairly. Um, but if if you have people that are uh, co- basically come into your polity. Not to um, live in peace and you know believe differently, but recognizing they won't have preferential treatment, but in fact, to disrupt everything you're trying to do as a polity, and publicly so, um, with the intent of doing just that, I think you're you're perfectly justified then in suppressing that um, you know, that dissent as it's expressed because it's gone beyond just toleration. Now there is, you know, a political problem. And you can say functionally, That this is a reality that's always true, that there's always, this is a, we we mentioned post-liberalism, it's a very typical post-liberal critique to notice that there's always some kind of moral establishment to which laws are deferential, and everything else is merely tolerated and uh, usually sidelined or ostracized. So it's just a political reality.
1: I'm not sure we actually define post-liberal in our recording, that might have been beforehand. Define for us your understanding of post-liberalism that you just threw out there. What are you talking about?
0: Right. So yeah, post-liberalism is is really uh, sort of a broad umbrella of um, various thinkers that have their own you know p- positions of kind of engage in this, which is to critique um, what they see as the you know, liberal status quo or liberal order, especially in its post or mid-20th mid, mid 20th century, you know, expressions, um, which many people might now just chalk up as progressivism. But the post-liberal critique typically goes beyond that to what we'd say were prior conditions of um, thinking, political thought, of course, where it's wrapped up that, that we would classify as liberal that, you know, produce some of the, the ills that we now notice. And that's, that's why those have to be investigated. So you have lots of, you know, Patrick Deneen is is typically considered in the post liberal discussion, and he he probably has the most famous book doing that. Um, even though there's there's others from various perspectives, including you know some some Protestants. But um, so it's just it's just the critique of um, as they define it, which you're going to get various definitions of liberalism. But but for the ideological front, you would say some kind of egalitarian principle or liberationist principle in political life, that this that the orientation of everything um, should be to compound and, and and produce freedom at every turn, you know, which is always rooted in the individual.
1: Yeah, that'd be one distinction I would make is the difference between a society built on individuals and societies built on, you know, little platoons and certainly the ordering of the family and civil institutions and all the rest. Steve, I think I might have cut you off. Did you have something to say?
2: No, no, no. I'm just curious in your response about the application of the The Decalogue, right? The the two tables of the law. It it, it seemed to me, and I just wonder how you'd respond to that, that um, the first table is being applied differently to the society than the second table is. In that there's nowhere in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 that you would have religious toleration. So some kind of difference is going to have to be made between the use of the Decalogue under Israel and then its application To us, you can elevate it as moral law, natural law, whatever you do. But as it comes over to where we are in redemptive history, some kind of difference is going to have to be made. So even when you say, have no other gods before me, in the Old Testament where that's given, uh, that's functioning in a certain way that doesn't seem to be functioning in how you are applying it. Right? You wouldn't say, well, if you go kill somebody, then we'll have toleration towards towards that or something like that. So it's just, it just how would you respond about how you are drawing from the biblical warrant for the role of the state, the role of the church, the the application of the Decalogue and so on?
0: Right. So so, I'm not, a, I should say, uh, you know, if it's not evident, I'm not a theonomist. I, I critique, they're good guys, but I critique, I critique theonomy for the simple reason that I... Don't think that, of course, the civil or judicial model in the Old, in Old Testament Israel is readily applicable or necessarily applicable to any given polity. I don't think that that's necessitated by Scripture and nor by the Protestant tradition. And so, what you what you can say is now now if you have people like Luther and Aquinas and everyone else will say this if you if you have laws from Old Testament Israel that are civil and they're they're readily applicable to your polity because of its conditions, you know, go for it. There's nothing wrong with them but what what you have in old testament israel is a perfect legislative act meaning that you have God demonstrating through, and this is beyond the Decalogue, of course, so return to that, but demonstrating the, the appropriate way according to prudence and context and the condition of a people to apply the very general natural law to, to a polity. And so the benefit of reading that is to learn from example of how to do it in your own context. But that, again, must be governed by your the particular condition of your, your place, and so you're going to have to make concessions to political realities, which I would call tolerance a concession. I would say this is just a fact of, of the matter. And so this is why you have the hypothetical from uh, from Aquinas talking about brothels in Paris and saying um, he, he thinks at that point a, a wise ruler it would be too disruptive and you simply can't eradicate them from Paris. It's too perennial. And so, you know, you might not be able to try if Aquinas had a blank slate, he's not saying, all oh, just polities have brothels, <laughs> you know. So he's just saying that you have to consider these things. That, you know, this is in the typical mirrors for princes type literature where they they have to get very nitty gritty. Theologians used to do this and say, you know, here's the realities on the ground you've got to consider. I would say toleration is is one of those of depending on, you know, your, your, your polity, but even in, you know, a, a sort of... Um, I don't know what we'd say, 17th century uh, Massachusetts. I mean, they were well aware of, of various dissenting groups that were kind of around and they didn't run around trying to hunt them down just to do that. But it was made very clear if you're going to participate in civil life at the you know highest level available, then you've got to conform to kind of what we're doing here. And you're also going to be punished for trying to uh, supplant that. And so I think, it, but at the same time, we have a fair amount of immigration happening and lots of different Protestant sects, uh, for lack, lack of a better uh, term, because, you know, whatever we want to do with Quakers. And we're just going to have to deal with that politically. That's that's fine. Is it ideal? No. Ideally, you'd have complete homogeneity with everyone agreeing and and also everyone actually, uh, <laughs> actually saved, right? So this is just, I would say, tolerance is a political reality. I think that it's not it's not unprincipled in that way. It's not purely cynical because we, of course, do recognize that we can encourage virtue and can encourage true religion by law, but ultimately it's – it's um, it cannot – it's in itself um, change the hearts and will of, of people. And so what you, the the idea behind the promotion of true religion and, and the church itself is that that will be the vehicle and avenue towards um, them embracing at a, even a personal level true religion and true faith. And so you do want to, you know, provide some leeway for that to happen. Your hope is that, that they will come to true faith, but you can certainly subject them to things like public preaching on a regular basis and, uh, you know, see if that's in- instrumental and disallow false, you know, preaching and that's not. Intolerant, in in my opinion, um, as from you know, from this kind of traditional perspective.
1: I mean, our time is running to an end. I got two questions for you as we kind of wrap up. We've talked about the state, we talked about the law, we talked about its implementation. I'm curious just about the role of the church. So that's my question, but I want to tee it up like this. So if there was an establishment of you know the Decalogue, if there's an establishment of Christianity in the nation or in a state, something that has been done in the past, what is the church's role at that point? And in the past where we had an established religion, established Christian religion— what did the church do wrong that it didn't continue to fund, if you will, the regeneration that was necessary? Obviously, regeneration comes from the Lord, but it comes through the means of the preaching of the word. What, what did the church not do that the church would need to do? in the proposal that you're making with this establishment of Christianity.
0: So, as I said, I think I said this already. The, um, you know, to me, the when we're talking about these political arrangements. It is a matter of justice and duty, not in terms of the salvation of, of individual people. That that outcome is hoped for, but not necessarily in scope when we're talking about the political theory of these things. I think you just have to, in the same way that the church is given certain duties and markers in scripture to perform and to leave the rest to, to the spirit, that we can't put that in a box or determinant. Uh, ahead of time we just do our duty to the best of our ability and and then leave the rest to god i think it's the same for the the temporal power there's a certain duty in relation to true religion and the church that it needs to perform and as justice to the one who's given it power right which is which is god and you know i do, i don't think that you this the uh, temporal power is allowed to reject or not notice both modes of revelation um, from God, because there's, which would include Scripture as well. It just then is a question of competency to to use Scripture, which is which is better found in the church. Now, the so these are a matter of duty, and I would and I would say all political arrangements and regimes are finite, necessarily so. They're human creations in in the immediate sense, inside of providence, and so they're bound to fail. They they'll always fail at some level. And I guess I re- re- reject the the common narratives. Out of many people I've I've talked with and debated, that um, establishment regimes were a failure that produced cold Christianity and no uh, probably mitigated against actual salvation. All these things I don't know how that's falsifiable. I don't know how to investigate that claim. It's just kind of made, and the the, uh, the evidence for such is to point to European countries that are now highly secularized that had or still formally have establishments, and I don't think it demonstrates the case at least on the terms that i set up uh, to to assess it with and so what did the church you know churches fail at or or succeed at i'm not really sure they've probably, they failed in the things they did bad and succeeded in the things they did good and then these you know these sorts of arrangements fail for for various reasons just as if you look at the track Uh, record and resultant trajectory of so-called liberal disestablished regimes. I think they're they're trending pretty badly. At least the other ones had maybe a thousand years of success, which, you know, you have to assess these things at a very basic level. Uh, Did they survive? I think that's pretty good. If you told me I could get uh, my ideal right now, but I'd only have a thousand years to enjoy it, I'd say I would take it. That seems pretty good. And something else will happen you know what churches should exercise their prophetic witness regardless of the the political regime they live in and that doesn't change when they have an establishment there will be need, opportunities for correctives that need to be offered by the church through its its weapons of, of word and sacrament and discipline in these things and then it's the the state's job to heed those pronouncements and to act accordingly if you're a Protestant, one change you're going to make in this theory is that there is going to be a role for the magistrate to also potentially correct the church if it becomes corrupt. You have to say that, otherwise you can't be a good Protestant because how do you explain how you've gotten here, right? So you have to have this sort of idea, but the, but they will, they will also say that because this relationship between church and state is coordinate and diaconal, there's also a sense in which the, the church must correct the state when it becomes corrupt if these things are, are symbiotic in this way. And so, I, th- I think those duties for the, the church, though, since that was your question, transcend any any kind of context. I mean, even now the church should be exercising itself publicly that way, and we don't.
1: Yeah, one thing I might just answer, and this would be historical, but I also think just the nature of what you're saying is that the church would have to say that cultural Christianity doesn't regenerate anyone right? So someone who is in a culture like that, to understand on your terms, it seems as though it's important to recognize that someone may see themselves as a Christian because they have been baptized into the nation, if that's what how you understand that, but to say that that's different than regeneration. And so one of the things the church historically hasn't done has to keep the sound doctrine and to guard against error, right? And we know that just with the Protestant liberalism and the modernist movement, all the rest of the 19th century. So that's at least one thing, a kind of thinking through the incubation of the discussions that you're having right now, it seems highly important to say that the mission of the church continues to be to preach the gospel in such a way that it says, if there is a nation that is recognizing, you know, Christ as King, that that doesn't mean because you're in that nation that He is your King. So, there does seem to be something that is personal for the preaching of the gospel in a church in that context.
0: Yeah, totally. I, w- I would say that your, your preaching should um, emphasize that all, all the time. Uh, I mean, you know, no matter what. And uh, you need to be preaching the true word and the true true gospel and you know, exhorting people to to embrace it. You know, I, misgivings about—I'm not saying you're saying this, but misgivings that cultural Christianity introduced uniquely, and that somehow an atheistic secular context is better for this. But a culture conditioned by Christianity introduced a unique amount of uh, confusion over this issue: whether you're truly saved because of, of reasons other than accepting Christ or doubt. Uh, questions of justification, all, all this stuff, they just seem per- like perennial questions to me of theology that people wrestle with in every context. So I don't see it as a unique threat in that way, but it is something to to always be preaching and, and people today, even as, as cultural Christianity so-called is on the downslope. I think they'll, they'll still wrestle with that. Maybe it's because they attend church that they're Christians and not really because they've accepted the gospel. Maybe it's because, you know, they do good works because they have a good family, whatever. You know, these are always there's always avenues for people to acquire false hope that's not sound. So I I don't, I think it's on balance worth it to, uh, you know, to have to preach against what what a great place to live where one of your biggest problems is to preach against how virtuous the country is and that people should remember they really need to accept Christ themselves. I think that's a pretty good problem to have politically.
1: Last question for you, Tyman. So, and this is kind of just a, what time is it now question. Thinking through, I mean, you talk about going back to, and I know you've done some writing and Stephen Wolf has done this and you've kind of supported him thinking about this idea of a Christian prince and some of the Protestant magisterial understanding goes back before the founding of our country and would see you know, the power that is being given to a king to be able to lead a nation towards righteousness and all the rest. But we also have a founding, as as Steve was saying earlier, of a constitutional republic. There are founding documents that are there what do you see? Do you see a situation that today that we are beyond the Constitution? There's, I mean, there's so many ways that it seems to be undermined by what is going on in Washington, D.C. and other places. Have we gone beyond that? Are we trying to return to that? Or are some of the things you're thinking about this beginning of this incubation stage for something else that comes beyond that? Certainly, we don't hope for the total collapse of our of our country, but I'm just wondering the kind of conversation you're thinking that it's at the beginning stages. Political theory: Are you thinking about ways in which to bring about, as you said earlier? I mean, not a revolution, right? There is a restoration that would be moving, you know, more incrementally. But just trying to think, what time is it, and, and how do you see that conversation leading to what comes next? Right.
0: So I think, like, uh, this is something I, I say frequently. We'll just say that the founders, we of course know it's more than like five guys, but so so I don't have to drone on for too long. I would love for us to be able to think like the founders did about, about politics and get beyond just parroting curated quotes from what they said. And the founders were excellent statesmen. I think that generation is some of the most brilliant people to, to live and that they they were very astute in this regard. And they were not unaware of the fact that their own constitutional order could fail and for the same reasons that those, you know, various other regimes they surveyed failed, and that they were not immune from that. So I think, is if you're going to be a good political thinker today, you have to have the same recognition that this this could fail. Doesn't mean you want to be a total accelerationist or something or, or long for its demise. Um, but that's just a reality. And your political structure should be in service of preserving a particular people. That's its goal. And if it fails to do that look at what the declaration says right so this is what the the entire rationale at the beginning of the Declaration of Independence is it's it's no longer this this current political relationship is no longer conducive to the proper ends so that that's that on the on the other hand recognizing that could happen and it be a lamentable future is is one thing if you're you should desire to work within the system you've been given that's again native to the to the people and you should find ways to do that. You should be generally agnostic at a very principled level as to the form of government, except for pure democracy. That's always bad. Don't don't accept that. But a mixed polity is, you know, the Aristotelian ideal. And that's um, people don't often recognize the strong monarchical element of our polity. In fact, one of the one of the strongest elements is, is the monarchical element. We just call it the executive, right? But it's the same thing. And we've seen periods of time in in history where there's that element has been emphasized more than others for similar purposes to restore order, to reorient in many ways the constitutional order itself. We've had several evolutions in this way. And that's also different, even that analysis was saying we can work within this, this system, we can appreciate its mixed form, and all we would want to do is make it function the way it's supposed to. Um, it's another thing to make, you know, Stephen Wolf's argument, and when I wrote a review of that, that chapter to say just in principle, there's also nothing wrong with talking about, uh, you know, the Christian prince and the way he does. In fact, it's very conventional, historically speaking. Uh, that doesn't mean you want to plop it down here, but it means that it's in principle fine, um, just as other arrangements are in principle fine. The one thing I would, would add is that, you know, we, we're so far removed from a, a polity that would have a really strong, both formally and uh, sort in a sort of obvious way, you know, monarch that uh, where the character of that person sort of trickles down and defines the polity in many ways, and it's sort of aspirational. We're really far away from that. And it does have benefits to it, I think. But as, as Aquinas would have said, monarchy is like high risk, high reward. Democracy is low reward, high risk. And, you know, aristocracy is like middle of the road. So it depends on how much of a betting man you are. I think the mixed form is is the best form uh, for the same reason the founders did. And I would like for it to function the way it's supposed to, but it's been subverted in so many ways. And having predictive analysis about what will happen it should not be rejected, in my opinion. There's been far too much hysteria, I think, around that kind of exercise. Um, I think it's very fruitful, um, and no one is saying, you know, they want to uh, usher in a dictatorship tomorrow or something just because you're recognizing the merit of, of monarchy or something. Um, so anyway, that's that's a roundabout way of saying I'm I'm not sh- I'm not sure what to think about all that all those reactions. But it does touch on something which is interesting to me, which means most people politically aren't thinking soberly, uh, because our founders were perfectly happy to engage in this sort of thought exercise and think about how do you how do you have established a good polity. So I just want
1: it to be healthy. Well, that's why we're here spent the last hour thinking through these things. And hopefully it's been, uh, again, more light to help us think through these things. Steve, any final thoughts?
2: Great discussion, uh, Timon, laying out the, your view and obviously a lot of commonality with many, but also some differences. And and you've clearly given us uh, your vision and version of Christian nationalism. So we we thank you for that. Thank you guys for having me.
1: Yeah, it's been a joy, brother. Steve and Timon, good to be with you today. And friends, thank you for listening today. All month long, we'll be offering interviews on the subject of Christian nationalism. These interviews include church historians, theologians, and pastors, all of whom are listed on our website. Our aim this month is to provide definitions and clarifications from all those who are pushing for and pushing against Christian nationalism. Next month, we will begin analyzing some of these arguments and offering many articles and essays outlining a constructive vision of church and state. Until then, enjoy the podcasts. And if you find them helpful, please pass them on to others. You can also subscribe to our podcast, Follow Christ Overall on Twitter or reach out to us by email. Our ministry depends upon the generous donations of friends as well, and we would also accept your cheerful gift as it helps us to continue to bring these resources to you for free. All of these things can be found at our website, ChristOverAll.com. For now, wherever you stand on Christianity and culture, church and state, Christian nationalism or not, let us remember that Christ is Lord, and so in all things, let us exalt Christ.